Hi, this is Becca. And I'm Sherry. Welcome to the Truth to Freedom podcast, where we're going to cover the topic of parental rights, human rights, and religious freedom. Enjoy the show. Well, Sherry, last week we had a hearing at the Capitol, and we had several really brave doctors and um, medical workers that came together, and they needed to share their story. And it was interesting watching the news (laughs) that came out after that to see what happened with the hearing, according to certain news organizations. (laughs) And it was a little different than what we watched and what we witnessed. Um, Honestly, I I was disappointed because a lot of the stories and the information that these doctors came and presented, it seemed like it just was completely bypassed and um, wasn't really relayed to the public. And this is something we felt is really important for the public to be able to hear these things. So we just decided, you know what, we have this podcast. If they're not gonna do it, we're gonna do it. We're gonna highlight what needs to be highlighted and do what we can to get the information out because people need to hear what is going on. And one of those brave doctors was Dr. Galen Perry. She spoke at the hearing and we invited her to come and share a little more here on the podcast, and she has honored us with that blessing to do that. And so we want to welcome Dr. Galen Perry. Thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for having me, uh, Becca, Sherry, and the Kansans for Health Freedom. Uh, you guys do amazing work, and uh, we really appreciate all your support and the, the infrastructure that you guys had ahead of time, uh, as we talked about earlier, not anticipating what life is going to be like right now. Um, So I've been uh, asked to kind of just share my journey, uh, my perspective on what's going on in the healthcare profession, and just a little bit of my background. Um, I actually trained uh, in Texas at Texas A&M College of Medicine, and I came here for residency in 1988. Um, I have an internal medicine and pediatric background, so I trained dually in both of those areas. And then um, about three years later, after I spent three years in Korea with my husband, I went back and did an adult pulmonary and critical care fellowship at at KU Medical Center, uh, where I ended up staying on as faculty um, for 10 years after that. Uh, I continued to do things uh, uh, in both age groups. I really am committed to the pediatrics and the internal medicine aspect of my training. Uh, did pediatric pulmonary for them, a lot of pediatric cystic fibrosis, took care of adult cystic fibrosis patients, pulmonary hypertension at KU, uh, covered in the ICU on the weekends. And then um, there was no sleep uh, board certified physician at KU at the time. And I uh, grandfathered into sleep medicine, uh, training under Dr. Bob Whitman, who is a PhD in physiology there, and then started doing sleep medicine. I subsequently then moved about 12 and a half years ago and helped grow um, the um, pediatric sleep program. In regards to the current situation um, with the pandemic and COVID, I became aware of uh, early treatment through a lot of individuals. Um, uh, Shout out to Dr. Carla Dean Graves here in Kansas, who had a Zoom call that introduced me to Dr. Peter McCullough early, early on. Um, I was so shocked that there was early treatment, to be honest with you, that I quickly took my phone out and did a snapshot photo of his algorithm literally in the middle of the Zoom call. And I began uh, talking to my friends and family about that. Very shortly thereafter, I had a dear friend of mine who had undergone 
breast cancer surgery, was receiving chemotherapy. She and her entire family got COVID. And she called me, she had a high fever on a weekend. And um, I said, look, you know, you have a professional relationship with your primary care physician and your oncologist. I don't want to step into that professional relationship, but um, reach out to them. If they don't have anything to offer you, please get back with me. Um, they had nothing to offer. And on a Friday afternoon, I, <clears throat> I called her in early treatment therapy, including hydroxychloroquine. Uh, she, she credits me, quote, with saving her life. <laughs> Um, within 24 hours, her fever was gone and she did fine thereafter. Um, so that was kind of my initial uh, exposure to what was going on. And the more I learned, the more I recognized that there actually was early treatment uh, that was effective. It needed to be utilized early on. And my conviction was that if there was treatment for a disease that was uh, kind of uh, evolving in front of us, um, that we were obligated to do whatever we could to take care of patients. You know, and I mentioned this in the Senate hearing that never in the history of medicine have we ever watched a disease progress and just stand by and watch it happen. I mean, that's what we do, right? We, we try to figure out a novel disease. We want to know what causes it. How does it cause disease? How can we stop that progression? Um, I mean, that's just, that's what people people do in medicine, right? That's what you do with any problem. You never just watch it get bigger and worse um, and then hope that you're going to have a good outcome. And I really felt, I, I was shocked, to be honest with you, that, that we would tell people that we don't have anything to offer them um, and that, you know, it's a virus, we don't have any treatment, go home, which that mantra has been told over and over and over again. But I mean, there's countless, there's hundreds of thousands of cases of that where Physicians basically said, I don't have anything to offer you. Um, and we turned our backs on patients. They're scared. They're bewildered. They don't really even trust their primary care physicians anymore because we've essentially told them we're not going to help you. Even giving people hope and encouragement, I, I'm, I'm not saying I'm advocating a placebo, but we do know that, that there are drugs that have anti-inflammatory properties, right? So we know that this disease is not only viral, but it causes massive inflammation and it causes micro blood clotting. So even if I didn't have an antiviral, wouldn't I at least offer an anti-inflammatory solution or an anti-clotting solution? Mm -hmm. um, and I know in Africa, a lot of physicians, that's all they have access to. Um, and, and people get better with that. So I, I was compelled to do something. Um, and, and I think one of the questions in the Senate hearing was, well, what is the standard of care? Well, the standard of care for the first year was go home, do nothing and wait for the vaccines, right? And in the midst of that waiting for the vaccines, there were hundreds of thousands of people who died. And so I, I can honestly tell you that the standard of care has never been do nothing. Mm -hmm. And so in the middle of a novel disease, we don't know what the standard of care is, right? We're figuring that out as we go. And so to me, the standard of care is to do something, try to figure out what the solution is. And that was my job, uh, along with a lot of other physicians. And I will tell you that I am on an email group of physicians across the country. There are numbers, at least 250 or more, who are constantly saying, this is my patient. This is what's going on. This is what's working. This is what's not. 
What would you consider? What have you used? What have you tried? That's what we do in medicine. We mentor one another. We, we, we share our experience all in the name of taking care of patients. And so I was doing that, right? It wasn't me alone. I wasn't rogue. I wasn't doing this on my own. I was depending on people who had more experience than I did or had at least some experience. Um, and so that's where my journey kind of began. So I began making myself available to only family and friends, prescribing prophylaxis. The word got out. The phone calls continued to roll in. I was taking, you know, taking calls from people at night on the weekends. Um, and then, you know, I would take care of a sick patient. And these patients were, they were elderly, 60s, 70s, 80s, even a 90-year-old. And um, I would, I would uh, talk to them every day. What are your symptoms? What's going on? A lot of them were able to get an oximeter. Um, they checked their O2 sats. Um, and we had families that were taking care of them. One particular elderly gentleman was actually removed from their residential care home and brought home. One of the, his daughters was a nurse and took care of him at home. I had another patient who literally called me from the emergency room and said, you know, I got your phone number from a friend. Um, what would you recommend I do? Because people were concerned that if they got admitted, that their treatment would be limited to what these countermeasures are. And so families did not want to be separated from loved ones. And they also knew that the, the care in the hospital was very restricted. Now I can tell you from my ICU days, nobody, nobody told me how to take care of patients. I'm not, I'm not prideful. I'm not arrogant. I ask for help. I get direction from other people. It's not about me being a, a physician and don't tell me what to do. Right. But you use your training. You've spent hours in the ICU um, you know, if this is not working, then maybe you need to think about this. Or if that's not working, you think about something else. N nowhere has anybody told me that a particular treatment is restricted or that I can only use a certain treatment. Never, never has that ever happened. And so I, I will also say that low-dose uh, dexamethasone does not have significant anti-inflammatory properties. We would never use low-dose dexamethasone in the ICU with somebody who has flaming inflammatory process, cytokine storm, um, who's really, really sick. We would never use low-dose dexamethasone on those individuals. We would use high-dose steroids, prednisone, solumedrol. Why are the hospitals unwilling to do that? It, it, it kind of blows my mind as an intensivist, um, even though I've not done that for 10 years. And I have had conversations with physicians uh, who are taking care of very sick people to say, hey, you know, I know you can't use ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine, you're quote, not allowed to do that. And actually, you have already decided that doesn't work. What about using solumedrol? What about using therapeutic doses of Lovenox or heparin? Because we know that inflammation and clotting is going on. And when you start talking to them from that perspective, they actually say, hey, that sounds like a good idea. So not only what's going on in the hospital, but what's going on in the outpatient setting is just, uh, it, I, I've never seen it before, right? And so um, I continued to take care of folks with early treatment. Um, they all did fine. And oh, by the way, it was the most rewarding work I have ever had in a long time because people were scared, desperate, and they had a doctor who cared about them.
You know, I mean, that's what mm -hmm. I'm called to do is to care about sick people. And um, so it, it was very rewarding to me. Obviously, I, I was happy that these people did well. Um, I will, I want to talk about the pharmaceutical interactions as well. Um, I think a lot of people have been denied prescription refills from physicians. I have actually had my own prescription that I wrote for myself denied. Wow. So a year ago, I prescribed hydroxychloroquine for my husband and I, when Dr. Dan Henthorne and Jeff Collier, uh, the previous Lieutenant governor of Kansas and the infectious disease specialist at KU came out with a opinion article in the uh, Wall Street Journal that I read that they said, hey, we, we may have a solution to this. It's hydroxychloroquine. I went and prescribed it, right? No problem. <laughs> a year later, when I thought maybe that prescription was no longer good because I hadn't used it, I thought, you know, I'm going to refill that. The pharmacist said, it sounds like you're treating COVID. And I said, it doesn't really matter what I'm treating, right? I mean, it's an appropriate, you know, medication. It's not controlled substance. And I had also called in a ZPAC and prednisone. The pharmacist says, it, I suspect you're treating COVID. I cannot fill these prescriptions. And I, I said, I'll bring you the articles that support treatment with hydroxychloroquine and COVID-19. And she said, I won't fill it. I'll fill your ZPAC. I don't have a problem with that. And oh, by the way, your prednisone dose is a little high. I'm a little concerned about that too. And I looked at her and I said, I'm a pulmonologist. I've managed prednisone my entire career. So she was picking and choosing what she felt comfortable filling. The ZPAC was okay. The prednisone was too high for her comfort. The hydroxychloroquine was a no-go. And so that was at high V at 135th in Antioch. I moved my pharmacy to Walgreens across the street, 137th in Antioch. I called in ivermectin for myself when ivermectin became much more, uh, we knew a lot more about ivermectin. They filled my prescription, no question. This was several months ago. When I got sick with COVID, I used hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, doxycycline, and aspirin, all the other recommendations. Uh, I continued, I got better within five hours. My fever went completely away. I never went back to bed. I felt fine. I've had colds that were worse. I decided I wanted to get my ivermectin that I had used refilled. There was a refill on that. I called it in myself. They refused to fill it. <laughs> so they'd already filled it and now they <laughs> refused to fill it. Um, they also told me that it wasn't in stock. Um, so to make a long story short, they basically said, your insurance company won't cover it. I said, I'll pay cash. How much is it? They told me how much. Then they told me they didn't have it in stock. For two days, they didn't have it in stock. And then the pharmacist called me directly and said, I will not fill it. So there were multiple excuses. And then finally, she said she won't fill it. I asked her to move my prescription to another pharmacy. She refused. So um, that was at Walgreens at 137th and Antioch. I, I demanded that my prescription be moved. They did move it and I got it filled at a pharmacy down the street. Um, and so the pharmacist down the street said, I will never deny a physician the ability to fill a prescription. I've never done it. 
except for one time. And it was for Toradol, which is a potent anti-inflammatory that can lead to renal failure. And he said, I got uncomfortable because the doctor kept calling this in on one patient. And this pharmacist said, I would never deny a physician a prescription refill because of, because of that's what I do. I fill prescriptions, right? Mm-hmm. Um, my, my respect for pharmacists is great. My pharmacists that I work with, all pharmacists are my partners. We work together to protect patients, right? If they bring a, an interaction to my attention, I'm like, thank you so much. The pharmacist says, hey, are you, are you really sure that's the dose you want to use? And I'll say, tell me what I prescribe. Tell me what your thoughts are. And, I, and they'll tell me what their thoughts are. And I'll take their advice. You know, a pharmacist is a professional who has a professional standard. And I respect that. And so this is not forcing pharmacists to do something against, um, you know, their profession. The problem is that pharmacists are, are practicing medicine. They're, they have never asked me when I call in a prescription, what's your diagnosis? Never. Even if you call and the recording, it says, you know, give the patient's name, birth date, your prescription, a callback number. Never have they ever on a recording or in person said, what are you treating? I'm not quite sure I agree with what you're treating. And that's what's happening. So what happened with me uh, was that I was told by my boss that I could no longer take care of family, friends. It was specifically about ivermectin. I was told that ivermectin was toxic. And I said, well, there's no hospital policy against it. The state of Kansas doesn't have a policy against taking care of family and friends. I've always taken care of family and friends. Actually, I asked you guys, could I take care of family and friends? And they said, yeah. The problem was that I was using ivermectin. And uh, I have that in writing. I knew that was the problem. And I asked for clarification. Um, So if I want to prescribe an antibiotic for my daughter's sinus infection, can I do that? Nope, you can't do that either. So um, my hands were tied to not only take care of my own family, uh, which I don't have a problem with unless I feel like there's, you know, I'm not going to fill a controlled substance for my son's ADD, right? Um, But what I was doing by taking care of sick people um, that I saw get better with these early treatment uh, medications, I was told I could no longer do that. And for me, I will not turn my back on sick people. Uh, I tried to work with my boss and my institution, uh, you know, even to the point where I said, okay, let me get my own malpractice. Let me have a contract. I'll do, I'll continue to work for you, but then I'll take all the liability. I only work for you three and a half days a week. On my other three and a half days a week, I can take care of sick people the way I'm called to do that. And, and um, they did not want to do that either. So um, I think they're moving away from contracts with physicians. I don't, I don't, I didn't take that personally, but I did everything I could to continue to take care of people at my institution, which I feel like I'm helping too, right? I don't want to turn my back on my sleep patients, but I didn't really have a choice. I had to live with my own conscience. And so I have said that in the, in the hearing, I took an oath many years ago, and I'm not going to turn my back on that oath. I also, this is a calling for me. It's not a job or profession. I couldn't live with myself if I was, if I stayed and I couldn't take care of people the way I feel like they should have been taken care of. So um, that's where I'm at today. 
I'm unemployed. What steps are you going through now to, are you trying to set up your own yes. practice? Okay. You yes. want to tell us yeah. a little bit about that? Yeah. So um, since I've done sleep medicine for the last 15 years, uh, I will be setting up a sleep medicine practice, taking care of pediatrics and adults. Um, telemedicine, you know, has kind of broadened our horizons a little bit and sleep medicine doesn't really depend a lot on a physical exam. So I'll be doing a lot of telemedicine to kind of get up and going. I will be taking care of early treatment with COVID uh, as well. And, uh, you know, just concerns with long COVID um, and those, those kind of things. So I think there's going to be a need for that. And I want to be a part of that. And then I'll also, I've always had a passion to try to educate people and advise people like, you know, if you're going to go um, with your elderly parent to a doctor's appointment, what questions would you ask? Um, you know, helping people to weigh risk benefit ratio with the decisions that they're given. Um, do you really necessarily have to have that procedure or is there another option? So I'm going to also be providing advising as well. So that's we'll awesome. see how that goes. <laughs> yeah. It's almost like you're um, teaching people how to get informed consent <laughs> because, they're not, because they're not getting it from the doctors. So yeah. that's great. Do you have kind of an estimate of how many people that you've helped treat COVID for as long as you were able to? So when, <laughs> when my institution asked me to not do that anymore, I obeyed, right? That's just, I'm not going to do what people have asked me not to do. So till the day I left the institution, I never wrote another prescription. Um, what I did do though, is continue to triage those patients. So I can't tell you, I mean, so I have a network of physicians. It's 43 at this point who are like-minded and it's growing every day. So we have a network of physicians who we could depend on on the weekend. If somebody got sick, I would send the patient's name and contact. I oftentimes would take the history, uh, give them a COVID uh, handbook. I would triage these patients to different physicians and then they would take care of them. Um, and that continued on and on and on. So I, you know, I'm thinking, I would say at least 50 people um, or maybe more, but, but, you know, not close to a hundred. So it was not a lot, but those were obviously lives as well. So I can tell you one of the stories that's amazing to me is that I got contact from, from friends of my church about this elderly couple who were missionaries overseas here in the States now in their seventies had, you know, minimal health insurance. And I talked to them on the phone and the wife was so short of breath. I was very concerned about her. The next day I referred them to a colleague of mine and she was taken care of, remained on auction for quite a while. And then when this couple got better, they had friends these people were also in their seventies that were ill at home. And they, this first couple took their oxygen tanks over to this other couple. And then I talked to the second couple and referred that other couple. I sent one of those people to the hospital. I sent another one to one of my colleagues and these people continued to text me, call me, ask me questions, ask for advice. And that's just the way it was, right? This doctor is willing to take care of you. And then my name would get passed to somebody else. So that's what it's been like for several months. Well, I know that just being involved with KSHF, initially we started out trying to help these medical workers that were facing being fired or losing their jobs. 
over the vaccine mandates. And through that, we kind of made connections with doctors and medical people like you and these group of 40 plus doctors across Kansas that are willing to treat people early. And so it has been a huge blessing for us as just lay people. When we hear of someone who is sick, we know what to tell them to start right away, mm-hmm. you know, get, get going on all the supplements and the nebulizing. And then here's a doctor, call them. And so it's been a blessing because most of these people, they go to their primary care doctor and they have nothing. They tell them, you just need to go home. And if you, if you get so bad, you can't breathe, then you go to the ER and you know, they're like you said, they're afraid. And so it's been so hard to understand when even uh, you guys have seen the results, but just, we have seen results. We have heard hundreds and hundreds of stories of people who have been treated early Mm. and have gotten better. And yet we sit here seeing these very same doctors who are saving lives, being threatened by medical boards, being threatened for firing. And we see the success they're having on the other side of the coin. We see the protocols being used in the hospitals and they're having nowhere, nowhere, even close the rate of success in treating how many people are dying under those protocols. Right. And yet you guys are the ones being attacked. And the hospital protocols, they're not to be questioned. It's just unreal. And I just commend you for speaking up and taking a stand and doing all you can. I know you said 50, it's not that many, but every life, every life is precious. And, and you don't know how much, like you said, people hear about, well, you know, Dr. Galen told me to do this and this and this, and they tell their neighbor and they, they start doing some of those things, even just the -the over-the-counter things. So you may not realize the impact, right? You may have, have one-on-one with 50 people, but you may have hundreds of people that you affected through your, your help. Um, and that's so, what, yeah, anyway. that's what I was not understanding early on as well. When, you know, we even knew about using vitamin D3 and quercetin and high dose vitamin C and just these various things that, I mean, we knew about, and it was so perplexing because I would talk to people, I would have friends that would be like, well, I have COVID. Okay. Well, what are you taking? Well, nothing. They just told me to go home. And if I have trouble breathing, come back. And I'm like, what? (laughs) You know, I'm like, what do you mean? I was stocking up on vitamins. Here's the protocol. I would give them like the math plus protocol so they could at least see it. So, I mean, it just, it creates distrust and increasing fear, like you said, and I hate that. I hate that that is there. And so when we do find doctors like you that are willing to kind of step up and be like, we need to do something sooner, it makes our hearts happy. What do you think needs to change to get the overall medical dynamic in that direction again? You know, that's the million dollar question that we're all asking. Mm -hmm. I think we're all just dumbfounded because there's some people who understand that you treat a disease early and then you would think all physicians would see that. So I, I don't know that I know why things have happened the way they've happened. I, I will tell you that as we all know, there is a corner on information. There's also this blanket worship of the CDC and the NIH. Oh my gosh, you know, we don't do anything counter to what they are saying Yet guidelines are guidelines. They're not mandates. They don't come into the room with the patient. They don't come into the ICU with us. We have been trained on the job. We see a patient, we evaluate the patient, we assess their vital signs. We look at the the, uh, 
the pathology that's in front of us and we decide what to do, what's best for that patient in front of us. And we never, ever would we want to make medicine a cookbook recipe for everything. Are there standards of care now for how quickly we treat a stroke? Because there is, you know, precious time that's wasted. We have centers of excellence to treat stroke and heart attack. I mean, that has come about over a long period of time with trial and error. What we know, what we know, we thought we knew and we don't know anymore. And we trial and error and we've changed. And now we do have a, you know, a set standard of care for a few diseases, but that's only a few, not all diseases. And in the middle of a new novel disease, we can't be told what to do. We're trying to figure out what works. And so I'm shocked that physicians would think that they have to be told how to take care of a patient and be only use certain drugs. So I think there's this misunderstanding. You know, I spent my entire career in academic medicine because I thought that's where the best care was provided. And uh, now I realize that the journal articles that are published are published with a bias. Mm-hmm. They're published with a, a narrative that they want trials are only done if there's money associated with it. And so, I mean, even the editors of the New England Journal of Medicine have admitted that the journal articles, there's conflict of interest. And so medicine, from my perspective, it's been an eye opener for me. And I don't know how it happened all of a sudden, but obviously it's been there before that there's massive conflict of interest. And I think that's the physicians don't see that right now. I think that's underlining, undermining patient care. Here's a perfect example. I've got a CBS flyer in my mailbox at work. I mean, I was livid. And so I sent an email out to my colleagues and I said, look, the mantra in medicine has always been we use what we're familiar with. It's what's been around uh, for a long period of time that has a safety profile that we can trust. We don't jump to every new medication. And I don't want a CBS flyer in my box. And I'm going to use something that's old and trusted. And I got crickets. And I was told by another colleague, oh, Galen, you need to follow the science. And I said, what science is there in a new emergency use authorization drug for COVID that, that the safety standard is even lower than FDA approval? And we don't know what the long-term side effects are. Why would I want to use that? So I, I just think there's, there's just a huge conflict of interest and physicians are being uh, manipulated and they, maybe they don't even realize what's happening. So do you mind sharing, um, you have some advice for say somebody is listening and they just came down with COVID and they're scared. They know they need to go to the doctor. How can they be their own best advocate? Well, uh, hopefully uh, maybe they may or not have been doing this already, but you've kind of alluded to that. I mean, vitamin D, to be honest with you, I've learned tons myself about vitamin D. Vitamin D is huge in regards to our immune system and how our immune system talks to itself and responds to infection and inflammation. So vitamin D is very, very important. So being on higher doses of vitamin D um, early on, uh, if before you're sick, I would say two to 3000 international units a day, get your physician to check your vitamin D level. Um, And they should not push back on that. Um, you can say it's important for my vitamin D level to be elevated. We're in the middle of a pandemic. I know it helps with infection and don't take no for an answer. Say, I want to know what my vitamin D level is. That's a reasonable thing to ask. And there's no reason why they can't order a vitamin D level. 
Um, you want it above 50. Um, that's nanograms per milliliter. So um, you want your vitamin D level to be up. I, when I got sick, I started taking 10,000 international units a day. Vitamin C, uh, I would take a 500 to 1,000 milligrams a day prior to getting sick. And then once you get sick, I, I've been using about 3,000 milligrams a day. Zinc, uh, when you get sick, you can use around 100 milligrams a day. A very important thing is the diluted providone iodine. So you can get 10% providone iodine over the counter, Walmart, Walgreens, and dilute it to 1%. And then you can put it in a squirt bottle and use it in your nose about two to three times a day and then gargle and spit out with it. It has antiviral, actually viral cidal properties, meaning it kills viruses. So it's not gonna be just uh, for COVID, right? It's gonna keep you from getting sick otherwise. And there's lots of, there's probably eight to 10 studies that, that show that that's very helpful. So that's probably one of the best things you can do to keep you from getting sick. And then once you get sick, you know, reach out to Kansas for Health Freedom, uh, get a hold of a doctor that's willing to take care of you and treat you. Um, and then we usually typically use a, an antibiotic to treat any type of secondary bacterial infection. It's extremely important in COVID to be on an aspirin a day, 325 milligrams, take it for at least a month. And if you have even higher risk factors for blood clotting, um, maybe stay on it even longer than that. So um, I, I even put my 25 year old daughter on, on an ad when she got COVID. We don't want long-term consequences for uh, diffuse micro blood clotting. So aspirin is extremely important. There's a lot of things that you can use to treat COVID. I know a common protocol that's used in many hospitals is if they are admitted into the hospital, they give them remdesivir. Um, and many people are concerned about getting that. That intimidates people because everyone wants to take their doctor's advice. We want to be able to, to trust that. But what do you do in those situations where you, you don't know what to do because we're just told it's just misinformation or it's disinformation? How do we weigh through all that stuff for someone who's a layperson? I think the best thing to do is to develop a, a really good working relationship with your physician, right? To be able to partner with them. You want them to be your advocate. They should be your advocate to help them understand where you're coming from. And it, it's never in your best interest to not have a good relationship with your physician. Uh, they should be uh, without bias, but they're humans. And so um, what, I would, what I would recommend is tell them what your concerns are. Tell them what you've heard. Also go in armed with good information, right? Not that this, you know, they may think that this is misinformation, but you can tell them what you know about remdesivir, right? Tell them that, you know, my understanding is the virus no longer start or is replicating after five to seven days. I'm now day 10. I don't understand why we would use an antiviral um, if the virus is no longer replicating. Can you explain to me what your thoughts around that are? And so then you can say, well, my understanding is that remdesivir, a track record of having significant toxicity, that even when it was used in other viral trials before COVID, it was removed from the trial because it increased mortality. There was limited data on remdesivir when it was approved for COVID early on. It was only after one study, and they actually changed the endpoint on the remdesivir. They couldn't show reduced mortality, so they changed the endpoint. So it sounds like to me that remdesivir, it has a lot of toxicity and, and it increased mortality before it got applied to COVID. Um, and some of the studies, you know, suggest that maybe it's not the best drug to use. Even the World Health Organization in a large study of like 11,000 patients, 
decided that, that it was not beneficial in COVID. I think going in with some of that information and saying, you know, showing them that you're an educated person, that you're looking at the information, that you have data, and that you do have real concerns about this medication and make them answer your questions. Don't just have a blanket. I don't want to use it. I've heard it's bad. And I think listening to the recent Senate hearing uh, with Ron Johnson, there are a lot of, there's a lot of information there. People want to go listen to that, you know, arm themselves with, with information. Well, thank you so much. Is there anything else that you would like to share? Yeah. So people, people need to understand that we are at a crossroads. Mm-hmm. Um, this is very serious. This is about all of our healthcare. I mean, me, I'm going to end up in the hospital too, at some point. This is about all of our healthcare, right? Um, this is not a partisan issue. This is about physicians being able to take care of patients the way that they were trained to and to the best of their clinical ability. This is also a not, not about throwing pharmacists under the bus. This literally is allowing physicians to manage patients the way we've always managed patients, partner with pharmacists, and, and, and be able to take care of people. And um, if we're not able to do that, then all of our health is at risk. And so people need to get involved. They need to speak up. They need to tell, express their outrage. And if this bill fails, I'm very concerned because we brought it, our attention to the situation. And then if it gets voted down, I think it's going to embolden things that are only going to get worse. So we cannot afford for this to fail. Um, And I, I really want people to be, they're already alarmed. They're scared. I mean, I can at least prescribe for myself and my family and friends. I feel for you that you don't have access to that. So this is, this is a, you know, you are vulnerable and you need to speak out. You have a voice, you have a story. You need to let people know that this is wrong. Yes. And for people who are listening, we've been promoting this bill, SB 381, and we're going to continue to try and gather stories, but most of all, to write your legislator, write all the legislators to know what's going on, that this bill is important because we need to be able to have the freedom to treat people and allow the doctors to treat people the way they, they know they need to, to be able to help. Yeah. And specifically write the senators on the committee right now. Mm-hmm. We want it to come out of committee. So specifically write to the senators. And then once it moves to the Senate floor, then obviously there's more people to communicate with, but yes. we've got to get it out of committee. Yes. And we have all that information available on our website and our Facebook page. And we are going to do what we can to continue to get the information out there and quickly because it's coming quick. I was just going to tell Galen, as soon as you have contact information for your practice, let us know. And we can add that in the podcast notes so people can find you if they want it. You're in the Kansas City area, right? Right. So I'm in Overland Park and I can tell you my website. So it's going to be um, sleepdoc, that's D-O-C, kc.com. So sleepdoc.kc.com. Okay, great. Yeah, we'll add that in the show notes so people can can find you and look you up there. Sounds good. Thank you for doing this. Thank you. Thank you, Galen. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be used as medical advice but rather a launching point of information to help you be informed and make informed decisions. Every person is different and has unique needs, 
and should consult with their healthcare provider for medical advice. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the hosts and the guests and do not necessarily reflect the position of Kansans for Health Freedom.